congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 8 of our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 5, we read, Therefore, let us keep the festival. Now when we hear those words, especially after having read from the Heidelberg Catechism, we might think that this is a call to keep the feast of the Lord's Supper. Well, if Paul is alluding at all to the Lord's Supper, certainly he is doing so indirectly, remotely, certainly not a direct reference uh, to the Lord's Supper. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul certainly is alluding to the Passover feast, that seven-day celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And that is a feast that we no longer celebrate as such. In fact, the entire Christian life is a festive response to our redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an ongoing outworking of that redemption. An ongoing celebration of that once-for-all deliverance. Not from Egyptian bondage, but from the bondage to sin and Satan. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is teaching the Corinthians about their calling as God's holy temple. God's holy temple in Corinth, a people in whom the living God dwells. A people who are then to be holy to God. In fact, that holiness is being violated in Corinth by their tolerance of sin among them in the form of this person who is living in sexual immorality, a shameful kind of incestuous relationship going on there in Corinth. And the great danger that the Holy Spirit addresses here through the Apostle is that this sin, like like yeast or like leaven, would spread. It would spread its corrupting influence to the great detriment of the congregation there, to the whole church. And so they must deal with it. Get rid of the old yeast, is Paul's command, to deal with sin among them. Yeast or leaven is a type, it is a picture of sin in its spreading, growing influence. And so the church here is called to deal decisively with this open sin that has been tolerated among them. And the great reason that he gives for this decisive action against sin is the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ by which we were redeemed, redeemed from sin and shame and called to holiness as a familiar hymn puts it. Now, this chapter that we've read is not uh, among the scriptural references that are cited by the Heidelberg Catechism. But certainly the the holy calling that we have as God's people, the calling that we have to be God's holy temple, and the great uh, ground or foundation of that calling in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, as that is taught in this chapter, is very central to our understanding of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because there we celebrate our redemption. 
our complete redemption through Christ, and also the holy calling that is entailed in that redemption. And so the Lord's Supper celebrates our complete redemption and our call to holiness. That's our theme that we're going to consider from this summary of God's word in Lord's Day 30, also with some attention to this passage that we've considered together. The Lord's Supper celebrates our complete redemption and our call to holiness. And we're going to begin by considering the fact that indeed it is a complete redemption that we celebrate and remember and share in also at the Lord's table. This Lord's Day contrasts the scriptural teaching of the Lord's Supper with the Roman Catholic Mass, and it does so in the sharpest terms. Perhaps you are familiar with the teaching of what is called transubstantiation, the Roman Catholic dogma that when the priest pronounces uh, those words of consecration over the bread and wine, that the bread and wine in fact, become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Substantially, truly, the the actual body and blood of Christ are then to be found in that bread and wine. And they borrow Aristotelian philosophical distinctions and say, well, yes, the the accidental properties remain. Um, It still tastes and smells and looks like bread and wine. But substantially, the real essence has changed, and it is now the actual body and blood of Christ. Well, answer 80 spells out some of the consequences of this error. Three consequences of this error. Two, it deals with most explicitly, and one by inference. And the first error that is involved in the doctrine of transubstantiation is a compromise of the genuineness of the human nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself a true human body. And he remains, even in his ascended glory, with a true human body. A body which is no longer present with us on earth, but a body which is in heaven. And the Roman Catholic teaching that in the Mass, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus Christ spreads confusion with regard to the biblical teaching of the genuineness of the body of Jesus Christ, which cannot be in more places than one at the same time. A true human nature, a true human body is limited spatially. The body of Jesus doesn't take on some mystical property so that wherever the Mass is celebrated throughout the world, there the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ is to be found. Jesus himself repeatedly makes a very clear distinction between his bodily presence with the disciples and his departure from them into heaven where he will remain until he returns in glory. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer present with us. But the teaching of the Mass spreads confusion on that very point. As if the body and blood of Christ now can somehow be present wherever the Mass is observed. And closely associated with that confusion is the idea that the body and blood of Christ ought then to be worshipped where it is found, namely, in the Mass. 
Very interesting. Roman Catholic theologians will admit that if transubstantiation is not biblical, if it is not true, well then it is idolatry to parade the bread and wine and to bow the knee and to show reverence to bread and wine. They recognize themselves that if their dogma of transubstantiation is not, is not true, well then their own practice involves them in a kind of idolatry. And so the, the confession of the Heidelberg Catechism is altogether fair and reasonable when it says that it is idolatry because transubstantiation is not biblical and it is not true. The bread and wine do not literally become the body and blood of Christ. If they did, we would agree that yes, well then they ought to be venerated and worshipped. But they do not. And therefore it is idolatry to bow to a piece of bread. We know that Christ is in heaven. And there he desires to be worshipped by us. Not under the form of bread and wine. But we lift up our hearts to heaven. Where Christ is at the right hand of his heavenly father. Where the articles of our Christian faith also direct us. And so the second error that the Mass involves is this idolatrous worship of bread and wine. But then thirdly, the Mass involves the notion of an ongoing sacrifice. Now here again, uh, Roman Catholic uh, theologians will object to the idea that um, they believe in the repeated sacrifice of Christ because they, they, they want to hold to some notion of the once-for-all nature of Christ's sacrifice, which is then pulled into the present somehow. So the, the once-for-all reality becomes a kind of ongoing event. Now, if you're confused by that, and if the authors were con- of our catechism were confused by it, I don't believe they were confused by it, but they're accused of misrepresenting uh, the Roman Catholic teaching on the Mass. But the very fact that in Roman Catholic teaching the Mass involves any kind of sacrifice whatsoever is properly recognized as a contradiction and a clear violation of the plain teaching of Scripture that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was a once-for-all perfect and complete act. Among many other passages, Hebrews chapter 10 is so crystal clear on this very question. In verses 11 and following, it says, Day after day, every priest, here referring to the old covenant priesthood, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. It's significant that uh, the priests are described here as standing. There were no chairs in the, in the temple. There were no uh, places to sit in the holy place. The priest officiated, standing, offering those continual sacrifices. But, here is a great contrast, but when this priest, that is Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The once for all perfection of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is emphatically taught in the Word of God. It's emphatically taught even in this scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 5, where it says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The tense is that of completed action. Something that has taken place in the past and which is completed. Communicated clear enough in our English rendering where it says, Christ has been sacrificed. In fact, this one sacrifice of Christ is declared here by the Apostle Paul in order to assure the Corinthians of the very same thing that the Lord's Supper testifies to believers, and that is the pardon of all our sins, and that is our complete newness in union with the Lord Jesus who died for us. In fact, verse 7 of our scripture reading which says, get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This one verse has been called uh, a compendium of the Christian gospel. In other words, it gives a very concise, a very succinct summary, abbreviation of the heart of the gospel message. And it does so in the way, uh, to use language that might be familiar to some of you, it does so in the way that the imperative is grounded in the indicative. Okay. The way the imperative mood, that is the way the command is given here, in a way that grounds that command into the statement, the fact of what Christ has done for us. The imperative is get rid of the old leaven. Deal decisively with sin. But the ground of that imperative, the reason for that command is not, well, if you do this sufficiently, well, then you can gain acceptance with God. If you are good enough and you achieve a certain level of holiness, well then God will receive you and God will forgive your remaining sins. Not at all. The imperative, the command to live a holy life is grounded in the finished work of Christ. The Apostle Paul says, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast. Yes, there must be a purification, but lest anyone should think that by getting rid of sin, you somehow will achieve then your standing with God, he immediately says, as you really are. In other words, you are indeed unleavened. That is who you are as the people of God who are already clean, who are already justified, who are already accepted in God's sight. Because of his grace towards you. 
You've already truly been purified from sin. You already truly are a new people without any trace of the kind of corrupting, growing power of sin that would defile and condemn you in the sight of God. Yes, there remains sin in the lives of believers, but not to their condemnation. Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the call to holiness is grounded upon who they already are as redeemed in Christ. That's what's made clear by the great argument that is brought forward here. You are already leavened or unleavened. You are already a a batch of bread, so to speak, without yeast. How? Why? Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. The Israelites, before uh, the final day of the feast, were to purge all leaven from their houses, to get rid of every trace of this substance that uh, was a reminder and a pointer to sin. Before the great sacrifice was then offered, typically pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. But Christ has been sacrificed. And what that means is that there is no ongoing sacrifice necessary, leaving us to wonder, leaving us to worry as to whether or not there is yet guilt that needs to be atoned for. Redemption is accomplished by the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the call to holiness is grounded upon that finished work of redemption. That's what we celebrate at the Lord's table, a complete redemption. And it is a celebration then of redeemed people. When we consider what is celebrated at the Lord's table, it obviously matters, doesn't it, who celebrates there. Only the redeemed people truly value the wonder of their redemption. Only truly redeemed people believe and share in that great pardon of their sins and their rescue from its power. Only the redeemed people know their true need for such redemption. In fact, the first description of the redeemed participants, the celebrants at the table given in our confession is that it is for those not who are filled with themselves, It doesn't even describe them, first of all, as people who are joyful and happy and who have abounding self-esteem. But it identifies them, first of all, as people who are displeased. And they're not displeased with everyone and everything around them. They are, first of all, displeased with themselves because of their sin. You see, this chapter that we've read from 1 Corinthians show how Christians, how true believers can be gravely mistaken. They can be all wrong. They can be in serious error about themselves and the proper attitude that they ought to have. You see, these Corinthians were puffed up. That is, they were inflated with pride. They were boasting And they were proud, they were boasting in a matter that ought to have humbled them deeply and caused them to grieve before God. They were tolerating open sin among them 
and no doubt claiming to do so in the name of grace and the freeness of the gospel and the wonder of forgiveness, that such sins also are forgiven. Well, yes, indeed, such sins are forgiven. But that doesn't mean that they can be lived in without repentance or tolerated without discipline. It's true that Christians can be too down on themselves. They can be too down on themselves by focusing on their sin and not focusing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that can be a real problem for some children of God. But there is perhaps a greater danger today of, of neglecting serious self-examination. A danger of neglecting daily repentance before God. Humbling ourselves with a purpose before the Lord in our prayers. Even naming those sins that we commit. And seeking to face them biblically. So that we cultivate a godly displeasure with ourselves. Because only those who are truly humbled and only those who have a a serious view of their own sins can celebrate redemption because only those who know their sin can appreciate deliverance from the guilt and the power of sin. But it's also important to know that humble displeasure with ourselves because of sin does not mean that it is good and somehow pious to doubt God's love for us or to live in doubt as to whether or not we are truly forgiven by him. And we see that also in our confession where the, the second description of the redeemed is that not only are they displeased with themselves, but, but yet they trust in Christ. They trust in Christ that their sins are forgiven. And they trust in Christ that the remaining weaknesses that dog them throughout life, that continue to cause them to stumble and fail, that also those sins are covered by his passion and by his sufferings. So that even the reality of our ongoing weakness and failure Sins that we hate and that we fight again, not as much as we ought to, not as, as successfully as we should, but those sins that still cling to us are also forgiven by the passion of Christ. We celebrate redemption accomplished. And we also expect that that redemption that has been accomplished will extend more and more in our lives. That it will be worked out increasingly in our lives. And that leads us to consider thirdly that this redemption that we celebrate at the Lord's table is a redemption that requires holiness. A celebration of redemption that requires holiness. We are called to be a holy people to the Lord. We began on that note, as that is made clear in this passage from 1 Corinthians. We are called to be a people who are holy to the Lord corporately, 
in our identity as a body, as church. We are called to be holy to the Lord, also in our family life and individually and personally. And it's important for us to understand, too, that this call to holiness is not something that is added to redemption. I understand that we might draw that conclusion even from the language of our theme, that we celebrate complete redemption and our call to holiness, as, as if the call to holiness is something that is then added or tagged on, tacked on to redemption. But actually, holiness is part and parcel of our redemption. We are redeemed from sin and shame. And call to holiness. Redemption includes God's purpose of transforming us into the image of his son. We're redeemed from all the power of the devil. Not only the sin that condemns us. From which we are justified in the sight of God. But the sin that corrupts us. From which we are sanctified progressively throughout life. So holiness is part of what defines our redemption, being made a new batch, if you will. A new batch of bread that is unsoured by the creeping, spreading influence of sin. Our rendering uses the language of yeast, but we're to understand that the Israelites didn't keep packages of yeast in their home, and uh, the leaven that they used was probably quite different than the yeast that is used in baking today. The leaven that was used was very likely a chunk of dough from the previous batch of bread that was saved, set apart, even allowed to ferment and and, and rot, you might say, which was then placed in the next batch to spread its leavening influence throughout the bread. And that even makes it a more suitable picture of sin because in a sense there's a certain risk you know the more often you use a piece of bread that had been in a previous batch I suppose the the greater the danger of some infection setting in and thus the symbolic significance of cleansing the home from all leaven whatsoever to start over with some purer form of of yeast a powder like substance that would be used to get things started again It's a suitable picture of sin. And sin allowed unchecked in the congregation would spread until the whole church would be defiled. And God's displeasure aroused against the whole congregation. That's the danger that was facing the church at Corinth. That's why the insistence on dealing with this sinner by way of discipline. That's the explanation for what's going on in in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When the apostle says, for this reason, uh, some or many of you are sick and weak. Some of you have fallen asleep. Some people have died in the congregation because their failure to address sin. They're specifically in connection with the Lord's table had provoked God's discipline and displeasure against them. And they were suffering the consequences of that. The point being that open sin must not be tolerated, but it must be addressed with discipline as our confession states most clearly. Even excommunication, if there is not repentance. You see, if the congregation is defiled, certainly the Holy Supper is framed by an open toleration of sin. There is this corporate requirement for holiness. 
There is a responsibility of the church to judge itself in that sense so that it is not judged with the world by God. There is also a personal and individual requirement for holiness that every Christian must feel and pursue. We cannot celebrate redemption, even as our confession makes clear, unless we desire more and more to strengthen our faith and to amend our lives. We cannot properly come to the Lord's table unless our sincere desire is to grow in faith and holiness. It's another way of describing what it is to amend our lives. It means to change. It means to get rid of bad stuff and seek to grow in godliness and holiness. And you notice that the call to Corinth in their present compromise with sin was not simply to deal with the sexual immorality that was taking place in their midst. In verse 8 it says, Let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness. Where did that come from? You would think that he would say, not with the yeast of sexual immorality, but here he introduces malice and wickedness. As if to say, let there be no hatred in your heart against your brother or sister or your neighbor. Let there be no indulgence of wickedness of any kind. No secret sins that corrupt your conscience before God. But live a life of repentance and fighting against even your secret sins. Putting away all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. As Paul will later write to the same church, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's a high calling that each one of us has. Let this be our concern and our earnest endeavor, not only before the Lord's Supper. You know, there can be a superstitious view of dealing with things before the Lord's Supper. Well, I've got four weeks to be reconciled with my brother. And then I've got to deal with it because the Lord's Supper is coming up. If we're not fit to go to the table of the Lord because we have an unforgiving spirit to our brother, towards our brother and sister, we're not fit to worship him acceptably on any given Sunday. In fact, the Lord teaches very clearly that we ought not to expect that he will receive our prayers so long as we uh, indulge sinful attitudes towards others. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, that's, the, that's a description of prayer. It's not simply something that's limited to the Lord's table. As if then we've got to really deal with the things, but otherwise not so. No. For every recurrence of, of the festive day of rest, every recurrence of Sunday, let us be careful to, to keep short accounts, so to speak, with the Lord and confess our sins. Daily, repenting of sin and trusting in Christ anew. Every day of the week, The fact is, we never live up to what we know, do we? Brothers and sisters, if we could only live up to what we know and what we really love and believe, that's part of the ongoing struggle of the Christian life. The sense of falling short of those ideals that we truly do love sincerely in our hearts. We never live up to what we know. We will never in this life be who we really are in the sense of our holy calling. In fact, Christians are often guilty of hypocrisy. 
The face that they wear is often far different than the reality of their lives in their homes and in their personal life. And Christians also realize that, and they fight against it. They repent of it. You see, there's a difference, isn't there, between being guilty of hypocrisy and realizing how shameful it is and fighting it and being a hypocrite. To a hypocrite, it's all pretense, wearing a mask, pretending they're someone that they're not in order to maintain their acceptability in the appearance of others. Let no one be a hypocrite. Let's fight against our hypocrisy. And keep the feast, live this festive life of celebrating a complete redemption in sincerity and truth. The unleavened bread of sincerity before God. Truthfulness in the sight of God in our dealings and in our dealings with one another. Amen.